Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast by myself, Sam Ketch, and my father, Chris Ketch. Say hello. Hello. This is the Son I've Got Cancer podcast. Um, the name sounds a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, you do actually have cancer. Um, so I feel like we should probably explain why that that title came about. I, I know when I was speaking to you about it, you didn't actually remember, but um, it's paraphrased from how you told me all those years ago now, what, two two years ago? Yep, I think it's two, yes, 2018. Yes, can can you even remember the conversation or is it just a big blur from the last two years? Um, we come back from a holiday or a trip to Bruges and that was the time to tell you because your exam results were in and you were all set for your gap year out. So if for people who don't know us, um, which is possible, people might find this and listen um, who don't know who we are. Um, do you want to quickly give us an introduction? I guess I, I can do it after you, but, you know, tell us who you are, where you're from, what you do, stuff like that, what you're interested okay. in. Okay. Okay. My name's Chris. I'm Sam's dad. Uh, I live in Hull. And I've probably lived most of my life in Hull, apart from a few times I've been away from it. Um, I work as a social work manager. I've done that for about 20 years. I've been a social worker for about 35. Um, what else can I tell myself? Oh, I enjoy all those middle-aged man things like reading books and listening to music and drinking beer and watching films and going to the theatre, telling bad dad jokes, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm hoping a few of your bad dad jokes will turn up throughout the first six episodes, which I think we're, we're planning on making this first season series, I guess, six episodes, aren't we? Uh, talking us through basically from the first diagnosis or how you actually went about getting diagnosed to whatever is to come in the future in the last episode. So, I mean, most people who are listening will know who I am, but if not, uh, I have made podcasts before. This is not a new venture for me, but actually having one with my dad is a bit different. Um, I mean... We have a Jack Whitehall and his dad as podcasts, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, you've always said that. Whenever, whenever he comes on the screen, you always say that we should be like them, but I don't think we quite have the prestige wealth. of Whitehall. <laughs> yeah, well, the wealth and the prestige of their name. Um, the wealth and the contacts to further our careers. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, this this is exactly the kind of thing I get harassed with uh, quite often, is about making you into a star. And, um, yeah. well, in, in a few weeks, in a few episodes, a few weeks, we can get on to perhaps why we had the conversation again about um, actually making this podcast. But... For the first episode, I'll we'll rewind our clocks, Dad, and we'll go back to 2018. Um, England had the historic, in inverted commas, run to the semi-finals of the World Cup. I famously finished my A-level exams that summer. Um, but I suppose, take it back some months before that, and you were actually getting your diagnosis. Um, before that, though, you, you weren't diagnosed in a, how I would say, standard way. I wouldn't say that you turned up at the hospital once and then were told, oh, my God, you've got cancer. It was actually quite a long-winded process. So I can't speak for the people. I don't know how they get their diagnoses. But I think I didn't go to the doctor and say, oh, I've got blood coming out of my ears or anything. I went to the doctor with a bad back. And as always, I don't think doctors are very good at that sort of thing. Having worked with them for a long time, they have a, a dreadful word given the exam fiasco recently, an algorithm, and that's what they stick to. So I turned up middle-aged man with a bad back who wasn't sleeping. So they gave me amitriptyline, which has helped me sleep, and gave me a phone number for a physiotherapist. And I've got me stuff from the physiotherapist, did my exercises, didn't work, went back. They gave me some painkillers to go with my sleeping tablets. And 
that took me through to about January, February time in 2018. And my back was hurting a lot. I was in a lot of pain with it. So I went back again and I went prepared for a, an argument this time. And the doctor said, you know, the physio was the answer. And I said, before I do that, doc, I'd like a blood test. I think that's something which I haven't done. And I'd quite like a blood test. And the doctor was a bit um, perturbed that I was saying I wanted a blood test. And after a long conversation, he agreed to a blood test. But he wouldn't do it because there's demarcation even in the NHS. And I had to see the nurse. And the nurse wasn't available, so I had to go back and see the nurse. And she took my bloods. And I think that was a Thursday. And on the following Monday, I got a voicemail, a text, and a letter all turned up at the same time saying I had to contact the GP and matter of urgency. So I rang up. And it was so urgent they couldn't see me or speak to me until the Thursday. So I trundled in on the Thursday and got to see my doctor who said, I need to tell you that the blood test suggests you've got cancer, but I'm not an expert in this. I'm going to refer you through to a specialist in neurology. And I think there's a, a chance you've got um, prostate cancer. And I said, oh, and what does that mean for me? And he said, well, you know, the consultant will, will explain things. And then I got to go and see a nice consultant. And he explained the possibilities of prostate cancer and what the blood tests are about. And said, before we go any further, I'd like you to see one of my colleagues. And then uh, you get to see uh, one of the colleagues. And you, you, most people are quite surprised by this, but um, given we're in the 21st century and given all of the advances in science of medicine, the, the way they examine you for um, prostate cancer is what's called a DRE, which is a digital rectal examination, which is they, they put a finger up your bottom. It's usually of a stranger and uh, you don't get any introduction from them other than you turn up in a clinic and uh, in my case it's a man called Steve who uh, I introduced himself as Steve and uh, explained what he was going to do and then put his finger up my bum and that was um, modern science for you. Uh, I then got to see the consultant and he said yes I, I did have an enlarged prostate it's probably cancerous and then he'd like me to have a biopsy because having had a finger at my bottom wasn't scientific enough. They would uh, much rather uh, have um, a scan of some sort. So I went back to work and pootled around and did the usual stuff of work and chores and putting up with you being a teenager and putting up with your mother, putting up with you being a teenager, that sort of thing. And then I. I'll set out my uh, text through my letter saying turn up at the hospital for a, a biopsy and I got up there to see uh, someone in the um, MRI scanning sort of bit and they said oh no we've cancelled this um, no no you should have been told and while I was talking to them I got the text saying it was cancelled said someone would be in touch but couldn't tell me why so I then got to go and see someone else altogether and I got a much more scientific test where they drill through your perineum, which is uh, how to get samples from the prostate. And that was my first ever involvement with surgery and any sort of major health thing was at uh, 58, 59, trundling off to have some strangers drill through your perineum, which set the tone, I think, for my experiences, which were told to be there at half past seven. We couldn't get into the building because the door was shut. And um, we had to wait for someone to unlock the door and let us in. And there was a bunch of men in their midlife to old age, all looking very worried and anxious. And uh, I rushed into a waiting room and uh, I got to sit around and have my turn. And uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, a biopsy, which was followed up probably a month later by uh, seeing the consultant who showed me a, a drawing which was um, 
not the science I was hoping for, I was hoping for some sort of pictures or things, not him sketching something on my notes to explain uh, my prostate. Uh, the cancer was through from one hemisphere into the other. And uh, finally, I was going to get the things you want, which are scans. So I got to go and have uh, a scanning MRI, which is meant to be super duper, but it was in a loud clattering thing. Went up on a Sunday evening to the hospital, uh, quite odd on a Sunday evening, because there's hardly anyone in. And uh, you take your clothes off and you sit in a hallway in a gown thinking, I hope this is legitimate and they haven't mixed my clothes because I feel quite silly sitting here on a Sunday night and there's no one around and it's very cold and then you, you get to go to a machine that is very sophisticated, very super duper, it just makes a lot of noise and makes you hot and sweaty. That was followed up by a couple of other scans and another visit to the consultant who said, well it's, it's pretty bad, it's spread, we're going to have to, two options. Uh, well, several options, but it comes down to two. They do nothing. That's not an option they encourage. There's um, radiotherapy, or uh, what they call a radical prostectomy, which is when they do surgery. And uh, then your choices get sort of blurred because if you have radio or chemotherapy, that's your one chance. If you have surgery and it comes back, you at least have a second bite because they can do radio slash chemotherapy as appropriate. So I thought, well, that's a bit of a no-brainer. You always want two chances of things. So I said I'll go for surgery. And uh, I then waited for my surgery. I was going to say, because obviously in that time between the January, February you're talking about and all of that happening, I was, let's say, blissfully unaware. I was just you know obviously I was sitting my exams or doing my final year and then sitting my exams and then having 18th uh summer of my 18th birthday and stuff like that so I was you know doing what you do in that uh that summer and partying and you know drinking a lot but I was obviously unaware until October so even then yeah. no no it was September we went away wasn't it because it was mm. early doors in September like around the 15th or something like that yeah um and so obviously then there was a few moments in there where I'd picked up perhaps on some of the things which were not actually related to the cancer or anything like that but just your bad health sort of like the fact you were sleeping a lot but obviously that now clocks on to being the sleeping tablets you know the fact you were complaining a lot about your back and your your chest and stuff like that comes down to the idea that you were taking these painkillers for something that actually was, you know, the back was hurting, but it was actually something else in your body that was the problem. So you're taking painkillers for something that wasn't necessary. And so hearing it all laid out flat, because some people may think that I knew all of that already and I knew the full timetable, but I only really knew of stuff from sort of the the august september time onto the surgery obviously which we'll get onto in a minute but because i remember my results day obviously being august the 16th and it was a thursday as they always are don't know why i need to clarify that and it was like seven in the morning i got my text from salford saying i'd got in you know congratulations you're into salford you've earned your place came running downstairs thinking I was going to catch you before you'd left for work, gave you a big hug. Oh, I've got in, I've got in. And then came, was leaving again to go and pick up my results. And you were still in the house wearing uh, civic clothes. So I thought being a, an innocent person that you were taking the day off work to celebrate with me. Right. And so you're, you're always going to do that thing of, Oh no, that, that was just a happy coincidence. And, but, the reality was I came back um, from picking up my results and ringing Salford to say I was deferring for you just at the same time coming back from the hospital and leaving to go to work for the afternoon. So it's one of those things where, to your credit, you did hide it incredibly well because I had no idea you'd been to the hospital. I had no idea you were actually going through all this. And for what, let's say you found out in the, the May or April, May time, you held that until September, sort of four or five months. You were hiding the entire secret. So 
there's two questions. Obviously, I'd had those conversations about having a year out with you and mum for a while. But if I had decided to go, would you have told me sooner? Probably. Probably. Bunot's going to university gave us um, a bit of time to play with. Uh, you weren't the only person we didn't talk to about it, your mum and I. I say we. I don't think I'm under the royal family. <laughs> but um, first of all, I had to make some serious decisions about how we manage and, and what it actually meant. Because uh, one of the things that happens, and I, I guess it's one of the things we've said we talk about in these podcasts around men's health, is well, a few people I told were people at work because I'd start planning to be absent from work and I work in a, a service area which is dominated by women and so the three I told all said oh well at least you don't die of it you die with it and went on to say what a it wasn't that bad really and in the hierarchy of cancers it was the, the lower end of the pyramid and um, I actually felt quite uh, quite stunned really and quite um, not knowing how to respond because I was in a bit of a bit of shock. You know, you go and see the quack and he turns around and does whatever. Uh, which doctor he is? That's an offensive thing to say about minorities now, probably. Whatever culturally defined magic people confirm onto these things, and uh, you're pretty stunned. You go back. You've got the c word attached to you. You're thinking. Not that C word, another C word. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but they always, but that C word's been around for a long time and I've had to live with that, but no, cancer. And um, off I went trundling around thinking, oh God, what do I do? What's it mean? And your mum, because of her nursing background, said it meant nothing at all. And that uh, it was just a con. Uh, I should eat lots of vegetables and that would cure everything. And I trundled into work and I said to the two deputy managers I work with, you know, I've got something to tell you, need to plan for me being for, away from work for a couple of months. Uh, I've got prostate cancer and they're both obviously women and they both said, oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, and I thought, oh, God, there's me stressing over this, thinking my life is going to change. It's going to affect me irrevocably and you're telling me I don't have to worry at all. Um, and then... I realised, you know, who to tell and what to say. There was nothing anyone could say other than that bland and banal noises. And that doesn't help me going through just being told I've got a diagnosis of a, quite a nasty illness. And it might be a quirk of my character, but I, I don't really need people to give me bland noises when I've been told I've got a potentially serious illness i need some serious conversations so what i did from getting the diagnosis was send off all the information which is uh you know, be informed to anybody who gets the illness anybody who finds themselves involved with the nhs and you get a diagnosis that's something serious be informed you can't rely on the nurse or the doctor to inform you inform yourself empower yourself and that's what you've got to do so I had sent off, and I've still got it. And if this was uh, a video thing, I'd probably have it around me. All my little booklets, which I think is 12 of them, prostate cancer and different things, and how it affects your life. And having read them, and your mother read them, and we went through the discussion of what option should we go for? Should we go for surgery? Because that's got implications for all parts of your life. Should we do this? Should we do that? How bad was it? Had we missed out on symptoms? Because what I didn't say was um, I mentioned doctors have an algorithm. I went to the doctor and said I have a bad back and their algorithm for prostate cancer is you get up in the early hours of the morning for a wee or are you having some sort of sexual dysfunction? And not wanting to sound like I'm a lad bragging, I wasn't sort of experiencing those things. I had a pain in my back just to open my pelvis, which meant sitting for a long time in an office didn't do me any good. And you, you sit around thinking, well, I've now got to prepare myself for a whole lot of um, potential consequences. And 
again, they are, they're not specifics that this can happen or that can happen. And you get lots of percentages. So 10% of men, this happens, 20% of men, another thing happens. So I had to get my head sorted out and work out where I was, how I felt about it, what I was going to do. Um, very tempted just to throw a massive sickie and have months off work, sitting in the garden, drinking beer, trying to persuade your mother that we didn't need to eat fresh vegetables and we could actually have chips, uh, maybe some burgers or something else, equally unhealthy. But I thought, well, if I do that, I'll be running out of money after six months, so I need to think that one through. And as I said, I needed to make sure that uh, work wasn't going to cause me any stress, so a lot of my time was spent sorting work out. And then I think your mum and I realised that we were running into the point where if you weren't going away to university and you're going to be at home, we needed to tell you because you're going to want to know why I'm around. We couldn't simply pretend that I was working from home or doing some, some sort of academic thing myself. And so we told you on the Thursday we came back from Bruges and then we went and told your aunt and uncle and then I wrote emails to my brother, your other uncle, and my niece and I rang up my friends and told them. But it's quite interesting because when you understand what's wrong and you tell people, you can give them the information so they know how to respond to you. So you can say, you know, it's a this, it's spread to the second two hemispheres so it's pretty far advanced but I'm going to have surgery that's going to sort it out hopefully and you're much more you're never in control of these things but you're much more able to manage things and people don't broadside you so no one turned up with a big bouquet of flowers and sobbed and yeah. reminisced for well, you say no one sobbed I'm pretty sure our conversation involved some tears I think you were I remember you telling me and it started me crying and then you just started crying and saying, I don't know why you're crying. And it was sort of a weird emotional cycle of you weren't like you presented yourself as not being that bothered about the illness and stuff. I was sat there crying thinking, Oh my God, my dad has cancer. He's going to die. And then you just started crying because I was crying. And it was just a weird sort of circle of events. And then I think we, we hooked it out and you said, I'm not going to die. And then I said, okay I don't care and then just you know and then we moved on the conversation and you just explained like what was going to come of it as I say we could continue to talk about the the timing uh for the rest of the the time left on this or we could you know uh, I can't remember what my second question was going to be after I mentioned about if I'd not gone to uni but I feel like it probably was covered in that last bit but I suppose we got up to around this point in what your actual timeline and then there's telling me and then you had your I think you had your biopsy after you told me and then it was quite a prolonged way after the biopsy actually for you to actually have the surgery because I feel like throughout this we haven't managed to paint the NHS in a, a brilliant light and some people will think we're we're conservatives who hate the NHS who want a private healthcare system and you know we, we can't we can't comment because one of us does want a career in journalism but that's not the case um the reality is just that's your experience was a bit a bit of a it was a bit corporate you couldn't actually get through and I feel like the thing that's really going to hammer that home to people and obviously my brother um Simon is not a NHS patient anymore pretty sure he went private after what happened with your surgeries but Run us through quickly, however quickly you want to do it, the actual fact that you had a surgery date and when you actually ended up having it because there was such a ridiculous set of events that went on in that. Yeah, um, you're right. I don't want people to think the NHS is a bad thing. I think it's one of the great achievements. And if you think that Britain was a bankrupt country, we'd just gone through World War II, and we managed to create the welfare state, including the NHS. And that's a great thing, I think. Healthcare free at the point of delivery is 
it's a moral and ethical thing to be proud of. I think the problem we've got with the NHS, and I don't want to go off on it because that will come later on, I'm not sure, but it's a religion in this country. It is our Catholicism, either pro or anti it. And I'm afraid I'm one of those sort of whiskey priests. I believe in it, but I also see its faults. And I think that's the best way to be. Otherwise, we don't improve it. So my experience was I had a date. I was told I was going on on a Saturday. And I can't remember what Saturday was now. I think it was in October. And I told everybody at work I was going in on the Saturday. I took a week off work to relax and chill out with you and your mum. And on the Saturday, I packed an overnight bag. And your mum and I set off. I can't remember where you were, but I don't know if you are in the house. But your mum and I set off. And the plan was to park up the car. And for a bit of a walk up to the hospital because there'll be some very happy people listening that you've mentioned that because I can tell you exactly where I was. I'm pretty sure I was at a meal with the people from Cottingham Lawn Tennis Club. I'm pretty sure the day you were going in for an operation, I decided to go for a bit of a a, a drink and food Eddie, experience. Drinking, well done. That's what you. What a do shock! What a shock! But no, back back to what you were saying. No, well done, that's the way to live life. So anyway, we got out of the car, we set off, my mobile was in the overnight bag, and I could hear it ringing, uh, and we ignored it the first time, and the second time I thought it must be urgent, it might be somebody ringing to wish me luck. So I unzipped the bag, got the phone out, and there was no number recognised, so oh, who's this? Who was ringing me up? And while your mum and I are standing, I was... In the middle of a walk, in the middle of an abandoned lane, um, it rang again. And this man said, is that uh, Mr. Ketchum? I said, yes. I thought, I didn't realise the National Lottery rang you this quickly. And he said, uh, I'm ringing from Castle Hill Hospital. Are you, you're due in for uh, surgery? And I said, yes, I'm on my way there now. And he said, oh, I'm ringing to I'll let you know the surgery's been cancelled uh, and someone will be in touch to rearrange. And I said, oh. And before I could ask the helpful questions, like when will they be in touch? Why is it being cancelled? Um, who are you? Can I have a name? He'd hung up. And I told your mum, and she thought that um, I was possibly was making it up, so I didn't want to go in. I said, no, no, it's honestly, that's what he said. He said it's been cancelled. So we stood in the middle of this derelict lane, which has been sealed off at each end and is now used for people to walk along. We just stared at one another in a befuddlement and then we came back and joined you in another room in another place in drinking, which is all you can do at times like this. And I think I either had my uh, colour and coffee vodka or uh, some other such helpful cocktail and your mum and I sat there saying, well, and expletives deleted because you've told me I can't swear. So we did that for a while, then I rang up um, my family, so you, uh, aunts and uncles, my niece, and then my friends, and your mum had to ring up her family to say, dot, 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 whatever expletive we put in there, he's not gone. Mm-hmm. And most people were quite surprised that I hadn't gone, but uh, it probably then moved from something that you could manage to something you couldn't, because the stress levels suddenly go from all right, I've got an illness, I've got a cure for it, I'm going to have to cure, it's going to happen on this weekend, the plan is, it's going on the Saturday, they do the operation on the Sunday, I've got the Monday and Tuesday to recover, I'm home on the Wednesday, to, what do I do? So the first big decision I had was not to go to work, because I thought, well, I've got a fit now, I don't have to go in for a month, I'll, um, I'll enjoy my time with you and your mum which is a big mistake, always a big mistake. Thank you. And then uh, I sat around for a month and um, I went in because they sent me another, well, I had to chase appointments, lots of phone calls, but I finally got invited back on a Monday night. Uh, I don't know if you you want the detail of it, but uh, if you do, it was edit it out if I'm boring and (laughs) self-indulgent. We went up on the Monday night and... uh, had my letter, got to the ward, said to the nurse, hello, uh, my name's Ketch, I've come from uh, pre-surgery. And she said, oh, are they expecting you? 
and obviously they weren't expecting me. Um, uh, she scuttled off and brought the matron, who was a very young woman, who looked very harassed and said, oh, what are you doing here? And I explained, showed her the letter. And uh, your mum, who was with me, was very helpful in that way she can be every now and again. Uh, she said, <laughs> you haven't got a bed for him, have you? And she said, oh, yeah, we have, we have a bed. And uh, I thought, oh, they haven't got a bed for me. And uh, we had this negotiation of, um, it would be much better for me if I didn't come in on the night I was meant to go in, but if they gave me all my injections and I had a, a night at home. So uh, I had my pre-injections and they explained to me what was going to happen and I signed the forms and things and then uh, came home. And your mother and I then had a big discussion of whether or not I could drink alcohol and we decided I probably couldn't. So we sat and carried what was on the telly on a Monday night, but most of it was us cursing things. Uh, got up on the Tuesday morning and returned to the ward, and they're even more surprised to see me. And uh, the matron came out, and I was talking to her, and she said, oh, so it's my last day. She said, I'm going to have to be a sales rep selling uh, medical equipment. I said, oh. and she said, um, some bits and pieces and I said you haven't got a bed for me have you and she says no 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 but would you mind undressing in the day room and I said well as long as there's no one else there and I went off and took my clothes off put my gown on sat around and then she came through and said oh you drink this it's an enema and then uh, they'll come for you with a trolley so I said there's no bed for me is there and she said yes there is don't don't think that way uh, I went off, I drank the stuff, had what follows on from when you have an enema. And then um, the man turned up for me with a, a, a wheelchair and I said, I thought they were sending a, a bed for me. And he said, no, 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 there's only me on. So you go in a wheelchair. So in nothing but a gown, I got pushed all the way through the hospital to the surgery. And I had the great pleasure, I got off the wheelchair and the woman on the bed got off the bed and they stripped the bed down and put a clean mattress and things on for me. And I got on the bed and she got in the wheelchair. And uh, I then had uh, anaesthetic. Uh, I don't remember much. Uh, and then I came to in a ward with you know, there's five other blokes and an empty bed. And... Uh, Yes, I mean, that's, that's another podcast is my recovery. Because yeah. that's, that's just going to be me being very bad about the NHS again. But this, <laughs> well, I was going to say, so... I feel like the aftermath of what happened and the actual recovery is, is the next episode, isn't it? So we won't go too much into that. But I, I can recall what you can't when you were on those anaesthetics. And that was probably the most... Was it the most horrifying thing I've ever seen? I don't know, but... The, the image of you in that bed, in that room, because you weren't in a very good state, because obviously you'd been drugged up all day and you'd just been in surgery, was just probably like the most heartbreaking. I don't know. It, it certainly sent mine and mum's emotions up and down many roller coaster, uh, sort of. I'm going to move on from the analogy of roller coasters, but you get the point. We we were sat there talking to you, and just every two seconds you needed a sip of water, and you know it it was just ridiculous because we, we'd I'd seen you obviously during the day before you went, and you were fine, you were healthy, you were chirpy, you know, as you are even in the face of a very bad surgery, you were in a chipper mood, and then saw you that. And you just were sort of weary, could barely speak, always needing. And I, I feel like something that people overlook is, as you've mentioned, obviously people said the same thing that your female colleagues said to you about it not being, you know, it's, it doesn't kill. Um, and obviously the great revelation of what it does do can come further down the line. But seeing you in that state was hardly, you know, a big smile and a laugh and you know something to drink over because i think that was the one time i've ever seen someone in such a state because obviously for people who know us they know about phil but 
you know, no, I, I, when I was what, 11 years old when Phil passed away, maybe 12. I can't remember how many years ago that was now. I feel like it was 2012, but I wasn't allowed to go in and see him for the full week. He was in hospital and he was in a, a terrible state by all of your accounts, but that would have prepared me for what, I, because of the fact he was in a far worse state than you would have prepared me to see you in the state you were in. But instead at 18, the first proper sighting of someone in such poor health was my dad. And it's just incredibly like saddening, heart wrenching, all of those descriptive things for the emotions. And I don't think people quite understand that even if it doesn't kill the person or it doesn't, you know, have a terminal effect on them, the emotions you go through, even with prostate cancer, when it doesn't kill you, if people want to say that, it's just, it's so, it's so weird because you, you have to go through all the same emotional trauma of, oh my God, they've got cancer and oh my God, I've got cancer for you. So then suddenly everything's rosy, bright sunshine. Oh my God, look, they're recovered. They're back at work. And people don't fully understand that actually you go through the same emotional process before and after, just you get lucky, inverted commas again, that the person isn't ill afterwards or as ill afterwards. And, you know, obviously some people know about what has happened um, since then and about the tests you've had to do and such and what is next for you but we'll save that for like a couple of episodes down the line but it's not exactly good news what prostate cancer has done to you and what that delay has done and i'm pretty sure we'll get on to cursing them for the fact that there was six weeks and i feel like that was something you missed in that thing about actually the the process there was a six week break between the first time and the actual time you got seen to and so much happened in that gap. As you say, you had a, m- a month off work because you still had the fit note for it. We watched a lot of Archer. I, I don't know if you recall yeah, sitting. We watched Archer, yeah. But you you weren't in a good like fit state during that because you were just sat in. I mean, it's when we had those leather chairs rather than the sofa there, and you were just sat in that chair like wrapped up in blankets. The one I've got behind me. People can't see the video, but it's behind me now. You. You were wrapped up in blankets. You could barely get up. And all right, mum ended up taking time off work to look after you. And then that was the end of her time working. She didn't want to go back after she'd done that. But for like the first three, four weeks, I was the one looking after you during the days and stuff whilst mum was at work. And it's horrifying watching someone who you've seen in full health just deteriorate so massively. And obviously you're not fine now, but you're at that same position you were beforehand. And it's so weird to have gone through that entire emotional roller coaster. You go from, oh my God, that's so terrible. And then you back up again at, they're fine. And like, you can get on with your life and you can sort of, you know, you have to support them through whatever comes next. But for the most part, you're able to walk again and stuff like that. And obviously going on to the recovery in the next episode, we will talk about actually what the surgery did to your body and, you know, actually recovering from it because I feel like something that people don't understand is that you did have your body sliced open. Mm. That's the bit that I think when you say you were shocked, I was shocked too at the the impact of it because the only people you have to talk to are surgeons who are going to do it and the odd uh, podcast you find online and what you read about it. So yes, it's it's major surgery and it's classified as major surgery, but nothing prepares you for coming round and being incredibly groggy and then moving because what they do is, so you don't move around, they tuck you into the bed and they fold the bed around you so you, you sort of are almost restrained by sheets and things. So at first it was a massive, but then you, you get a dull ache and uh, you're sore. And yeah, it's, um, and the other bit about it is, you know, I was in a ward with five other blokes. One was very ill and I'd just been told that he was going to die. One was like myself, an incredibly lucky man. I mean, one of the reasons for doing this and one of the things I try not to be, but I, I know I am, is quite zealot about men's health and November and around prostate cancer. 
because it is underreported. Men do die of it. The guy who was again one of the younger people in the, the five of us, there are three brothers. His elder brother hadn't been feeling very well, and again, he hadn't gone with nighttime incontinence or premature ejaculation or any of the things that are meant to be part of the algorithm. He'd just gone feeling tired. The, I'd done the blood test for him and he found he had prostate cancer and he got in touch with his two brothers, one of whom was in with me and said, you know, you need to get checked out. And this guy hadn't gone and his brother kept pestering him to go. So he finally went and he had a test and they said, oh, we need to get you into the system really quickly. We need to get surgery done. And he said, oh, I've got, uh, I've saved up. I went off to Australia to see my family for a couple of months. And he'd come back from Australia and come straight into surgery because, um, you know, it's one of those things. He had no idea. His brother had no idea. Uh, it might be that men are ill-informed about their bodies. I don't take things seriously, but... Yeah, I was, it was quite a shocking thing to suddenly find for the first time ever you, you're visiting to hospital for uh, surgeries and having ingrowing toenails taken out or your wisdom teeth dealt with. It was, uh, it was cancer. Uh, I think I remember that night, uh, it's the worst night of my life. We had bad nights, we all have bad nights, but the anesthesia wearing off. The night call system for the nurse was broken and kept going off every 15 minutes. Donna was got any sleep and the light set kept coming on because the nurse had to keep coming in because the thing was going off and they couldn't turn it off because it was the only way they had of monitoring us. And so uh, that Monday night was just like, oh, or Tuesday night rather, I'm getting it confused, you see. That Tuesday night was like, bloody hell, where am I? And yeah, it was a. I, I don't recommend surgery as a pastime, and there are people with uh, Munchausen's by proxy who go looking for, for surgery and things as a, a a part of how they cope with life. I wouldn't recommend surgery as a way of coping with life because it was uh, yeah, it was bloody awful. And uh, even though I was up to my eyeballs with pain relief, I, I still remember it being painful. Well, yeah, I, you said the stories about the the three brothers, and obviously, I feel like something we should be dashing in these. Obviously, it's not just serving as you know informative us sitting here and just telling you all how it comes about. There is you know an element of lighthearted fun, such as you um, talking about how you've had the c word attached with you for years, but not cancer, the other one. You know this isn't just a podcast about making everyone upset and feel sorry for us the there is also the informative side of it and you've obviously mentioned it there about those three brothers but i suppose something that's worth mentioning is granddad didn't die of it or whatever but in his later life was diagnosed with it and then you've had it and so the realistic possibility is that come 45 or whatever i'll have to go and get tested well i can get tested before that but 45 is the age they suggest and like so at 45 realistically i'll have to go get tested and because hereditary it's it's something like one in four men will get it i think one in four men get it is that right you've got something like that but that that goes up every single time someone else in your family has it because it's you know genetics and such and so one of the weird things is i suppose i'm not starting my announcement of oh everyone i've got cancer because it's stupid to do but realistically if someone in your family has had it you don't realize but it's not like the cold oh well my dad's had it so i'm gonna have it because he sneezed and i was in the room but you've passed on your genetics to me and so if they've come from if they've come from granddad who's also had it then the chances are much higher that you know it say it goes up by the same fraction that was already at so it's one in four already suddenly i'm at 75 percent chance because two people in my family before that have had it and you know it's not what you wanted is it you wanted the cougarons and i'm afraid you haven't got the cougarons 
No. Well, I, I suppose looking forward, do you want to not give us a teaser, but I suppose a little bit so that we can sort of preempt what's coming in the next episode. We're going to be talking about your recovery from it. Is there anything else you want to round off this first part, this first episode, I suppose, with about actually being diagnosed, having the surgery, the bit up to, say, the first week afterwards, up to that point? Is there anything from that period we feel like we've missed, not covered, should be talking about? Because I would like it if you if you then, you know, maybe spoke about the fact that I did actually try and look after you because I feel like you painted me in a bad way here. Or I paint myself in that bad No, no, no. You, you were very helpful. And I made lots of nice tea and introduced me to Archer and all those other things that I... Paid for your Netflix, before. thank you. You did, yes. Yes, you introduced do. me to Netflix. Yes, that's the way it should be. Yeah, well, um, you, you freeload off my Netflix and Amazon Prime. And I do. You, uh, you, you spend my money on it as well, I would like to point out that... Not that this is yes. done as me holding you to account, no, but no, I, I, you did rent a film on Amazon Prime and it came out of my account it. and I was, you bought it, well, even worse. Mm. And it came out of my account. I was very surprised and I was sort of wondering where this money was going from my bank account to Amazon Prime thinking someone's got my bank card, went looking mm. for it. No, it's still in my wallet. Oh, what down, you're there buying Zen on the, uh, on the TV. Yes. But yeah, no, I... I one of the things I would like you to talk about, actually, is that period when it was me and you. Because for me, that was a, a nice, not not nice thing to do because it was such a horrible period. But I essentially stopped everything. Um, I didn't really play much tennis. It was mainly evenings and stuff um, at that point, which is similar in winter anyway. But I did just stay home with you for during the days and stuff and you know we we did we did whatever we did and I either went off somewhere during the day whilst you would sleep in or I went and did x y and z and uh, said sorry I'm not American I don't know why I said z um but yeah I, I suppose is um, there something you remember from that period apart from it is, no and to be fair to, to, to both of us really we never actually spent much time together as uh, father and son. So it was nice to have some quality time together doing shit, really. Um, sitting, watching TV, talking rubbish, striking poses and doing what blokes do. Because we hadn't done that. And I think in what, partly because we have different interests, partly because we do different things, it was the first time we had some quality time together. It was... Uh, pleasant to do and not end up arguing yeah well mainly because we couldn't argue because you were asleep for the majority of the time you were in and out of consciousness i'm always asleep my mind is the best thing to be (laughs) yeah i was gonna say i wanted to make the joke right back at the start we talked about sleeping pills but i didn't know if people would be uh, offended by by me sort of joking about it but you are always asleep like because um, this genuinely isn't me trying to you know rip you for something, but if the sleeping had been a symptom of it, I would never have noticed. Because even before, and you 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 self confess this, you do just fall asleep when you come back home from work. Because you did, uh, you're still doing long days now because you're still working. But back then you were working incredibly long shifts because you were going in for the bus at seven o'clock. So you had to be up at five thirty, and you were coming home from work at six o'clock so back home for seven like that was my childhood was you and mum doing incredibly long days at work and so you were always bound to be very tired and sleepy but yeah it it was one of those weird things where obviously knowing you were ill at that point we did spend a lot of quality time together but I only realized just how much you were falling asleep when we actually did spend that quality time together and it probably didn't help that um i was very abusive about the fact you'd fall asleep in the middle of episodes so i'd pause it shout at you get you to wake up turn it back on you'd fall asleep again same process so yeah i mean you said it but it was a lot of quality time together that we hadn't really ever spent because as you said different interests different hobbies but we watched a lot of netflix and films and stuff and we you know, I think there's probably a lot of stuff that on my 
Netflix account has been watched and sort of seen all the way through that I wouldn't have watched or wouldn't have done if I hadn't spent that time with you. And I feel like probably coming up, like in that recovery episode, we'll talk about the fact that I did stop looking after you and it was mum, but I suppose it, it did wear as both, like, can't speak for you, but it did um, tire me out a lot because we went from not spending much time together to then it was every day. It did tire me out. And obviously in the recovery episode, we can talk about what I did instead of looking after you whilst mum was. But no, I, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up the diagnosis and the the running through from the January to the, the November of that year. It was a full 11, 12 month thing was it getting was. diagnosed. Because if you remember, the surgery was the early weeks of December and I, my outpatient appointment for them to prod and poke me and take the catheter out was the 19th of December. Well, I don't know if you remember the, the date you were supposed to go in was the same day that <laughs> Phil had passed away. So it was almost one of those weird, it was oh. the 11th of November. That was yeah. the Saturday um, that we were talking about when it got delayed and stuff. So it was a weird sort of like, and in my head, I probably said it earlier in the episode, so I've got to apologize. In my head, it was, you had it back end of November and it was uh, mid October that you'd been delayed, but it was actually later than that because yeah. it was October time. We'd had the four weeks off together. Like, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a def- definitely a different kind of Christmas that year, but the 11th of November obviously was, it was sort of weird superstitious like oh dad's gonna get treated on the same day that phil passed away and it was sort of like this weird family sort of like suddenly everything was happening on the 11th of november but yeah um for for the next episode we can think of some christmas gags about um prostate cancer or something um but yeah bang on exactly I didn't actually hear taking what you said. The piss. So I'm just... Catheters, taking the uh, piss. So... You're much faster than me and also have better ears than me, clearly. But I suppose if you want to say goodbyes, Dad, we can wrap up this episode here and see people for the next one. It's goodbye from me and goodbye from him.